All right, good morning. We're in week two of a series called Boundaries, in which we are looking at how can we develop healthy boundaries in our lives. Uh, This series is based off a book by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, and it's called Boundaries. And so my title is not all that creative. Uh, But I did want to go over this material, not because I believe that the Bible isn't what we should be talking about, but because this book has so many biblical principles in it that we struggle with so often and so regularly. As I do counseling, uh, I said last week that probably 95 to 100% of the people who I talk with are struggling with boundaries. When do they say yes and when do they say no? And so for these next couple weeks, we're just going to talk about how we can establish healthy areas of boundaries in our own lives. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, defining what a boundary is. And boundary is nothing more than an invisible fence that defines what we are responsible for and what we are not responsible for. In other words, when we have healthy boundaries in our lives, we have the confidence to say yes when we should say yes and to say no when we should say no. A healthy person that has healthy relationships does not say yes to everything, but in the same way, neither do they say no to everything. They have a guiding principle, something that helps them to understand when they should say yes and when they should say no. Now, as people, we know, and we looked at this last week, that we do have some responsibility to others. But as we saw this last week, we are responsible to others, but we are responsible for ourselves. We saw that there are certain things that we cannot pass on to other people, that we must carry those Uh, those loads for ourselves. We have to carry them. We looked at nine areas, and if you want to see those, you can just go to our website. But this morning, as we continue our series, we are going to be looking this morning at common boundary problems and how they develop. And our pathway is going to be really easy and really simple. We are going to look at four uh, boundary problem category people. I don't know. There's probably a better way to say that, but four categories of people that struggle with boundaries. This will be kind of fun, and as we listen to those, you can start to think about which of these do you fall into. I do not encourage you to think about where everybody else falls. Just think about yourself for the most part, but inevitably we always do that, don't we? Uh, And then we're going to look at one overarching principle from the Bible that kind of guides us in being able to develop healthy boundaries, why we struggle with it. But if we understood this one principle, we would have the foundation to start setting up healthy boundaries. And so with no further ado, people who struggle with boundary problems, four main categories. The first category is compliance. People who say yes to the bad. Compliance, people who say yes to bad things. Uh, The book tells a story about a man, his name was Robert, and he was middle-aged, and he had struggled with something, with saying yes to the bad all his life. He was a man who'd come home at night And uh, he was really late because he couldn't tell his boss he could go home. And his wife was always upset at him and would say stuff to him like, you know, why do you always say yes to your boss at work? And he said, I I can't help it. Uh, I just have to say yes. And the wife says, well, I can tell you one person that you have an easy time saying no to you, and that's my wife, your wife and your kids. And the man broke down in tears, and he had gone to see the counselor. And as the counselor was talking with him, he started to ask him questions about how he Uh, how his um, formative years as a child were. And the counselor discovered this. When Robert was a kid, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but when when Robert was a kid, he was the youngest of four siblings, 
and his three older siblings were all girls. And he was three years younger than his next youngest sibling. And these girls, um, they, I think, liked their brother, but as oftentimes siblings do, they would pick on their brother. And so they just relentlessly beat him up. And he wasn't strong enough to defend himself real well until he was about in high school, because, you know, it was three against one, and I know he was a boy, and he should just be able to beat up everybody, but it doesn't work that way, right? Girls have powers too, and they used them. Triple teaming. And as he's talking, there would be times when Robert would fight back against his sisters, and this is not a hard scenario to imagine. He would fight back about his, uh, against his sisters, and the sisters then would go and would tell their parents, and the parents would always say this to the little Robert, you know, the small little kid. Boys do not hit girls, right? But Robert was being bruised by those girls regularly and often. And when he tried to set boundaries and tried to say no through fighting back for his very, you know, existence or whatever, he was sent a message by his parents. Boys don't hit girls. That saying no is not okay. Now, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any of those other things. Uh, I took a lot of master's classes, but none of them were on counseling except for like two credit hours. But it's not hard to imagine that if we all of our life are told to say no is not okay, then we learn not to say no. Um, Just the other day, I was uh, interacting with my children. It was actually just yesterday. And like everybody, it seems like I'm struggling with a cold. And I just wanted things to be quiet. And so my kids are playing like normal, you know, six, eight, and three-year-olds do. And if, uh, luckily, my wife will stop, stop me from being a tyrant and ruining their lives completely. But um, I always just wanted to be quiet, you know, but especially when I had a cold. And so my boys were playing, and they were being loud, and they were bringing toys into the living room, which I don't know why they can't just play exclusively quietly in their bedrooms and keep the toys clean, but that's not the way it works in our household, probably not in yours either. And I said, boys, can you be quiet? And they said, why, Daddy? And I said, I'm just not feeling really good. So then a couple minutes later, they're loud again. Boys, could you be quiet? Um, You know, why, Daddy? Because I'm not feeling good. And then a couple minutes later, boys, could you really be quiet, Daddy? I don't like it when you yell at me. Why do we have to be quiet? And I said, this is what we were all told so often, right? Because I told you so, now go in your bedroom, right? But we need to give our kids some kind of framework that they have to engage with us. Now, in my defense, um, the kids did harass me twice, and I did explain to them twice before I told the the dreaded I told you so. But eventually, a parent gets worn down, right? Right? Compliance learned from experience that if if they say no, things will not be pleasant. And so they learn to say yes, to keep the status quo or to keep harmony. Uh, they, They learn to be chameleons and they adapt to their environment to keep the peace because they are afraid that if they don't, things will become unpleasant. And that's really a big key. And you'll see that as we go through these four categories. Uh, Fear. Compliance are motivated by fear. The fear of the unpleasant if they do not do what the person is telling them to do. Compliance take on too many responsibilities and they set too few boundaries, not because that's what they want to do, but because 
they're afraid. If you have a friend and you are worried that this person will not be your friend if they say no, then that person really isn't a friend, is it? You know? Number two, avoidance, saying no to the good. Compliance, say yes to the bad, but compliance, say, or avoidance, say no to the good. Avoidance are often the most selfless and giving people we know. They always are doing things for other people. But when it comes time and they need help themselves, they are reluctant to let other people in. Just this past week, we started small group uh, up again for our fall trimester. And I've been in a lot of small groups over time, in seminary and now at church and in different experiences. And if you were in your small group this past week and you didn't have like this super emotional moment and you were wondering why not, that's just not what happens usually the first week, is it? But as the group gets closer, there is inevitably a time when things slightly change. And it usually happens because one person in the group opens up and shares something that is really meaningful to them besides just the the things that are safe to say. And when that happens, you'll notice that it, it can change the whole dynamic of a group. But have you ever been in a group and you have this happen where one person takes the chance and they share something and it changes everything and everybody open up, begins to open up. But imagine this scenario with me if you haven't seen it happen. I have. And finally you get to the final person to share and everybody has opened up and the whole dynamic has changed and now it's the leader's turn to share. And the leader, uh, the person before him, the, uh, turns to the leader and says, you know, Jane Doe, what is really going on with your life? And that person turns and says, you know what? I'm so glad you guys were able to share tonight. Uh, your needs are so pressing. They would pale in comparison to mine. And so why don't we just pray for you guys? And if you've ever been in a group like that, you'll notice that the environment just deflates for there's this expectancy that now we're going to really share what matters. And the leader says no to the good, to opening themselves up and to sharing what really matters to them. You see, avoidance put up boundaries or fences where they shouldn't have one. They have a need but they refuse to let others help them with their need. They refuse to let others help them because they are afraid of being vulnerable. This is the kind of person that every time you need to move, they're there to help you move. But when it's their turn, they don't ask anybody and they're up all weekend, right? Avoidance are afraid to let each other, to let others in because they do not want to be seen as vulnerable. So compliance are afraid. They're afraid to say no to lose a friendship or to lose something. And they want to keep unpleasantness at a minimum and pleasantness at a maximum. And they're willing to do that completely at their own expense. Avoidance are afraid. And they just, uh, they, they just don't let the good in. The third category is controllers. Controllers. And we may be able to see ourselves in compliance and avoidance, but probably few of us would see ourselves as controllers. That's why we need other people sometimes to help us see, because if you are a controller, everybody else knows that you're a controller. So listen to them every so often. Controllers are people who have no respect for other people's boundaries. 
And controllers can show up anywhere. They can show up at work in the form of bosses or other employees who try to make you say yes to things that you do not want to say yes to. They call you at home during dinner. They call you on vacation. They call you on the weekend because you are so important and they need you. Controllers can show up in our friendships. People who manipulate us and just say, you are so good at this. Can you please help me? We had one vacation. We went to Florida with our buddy and their parents had a condo. And uh, my wife and I went on a vacation with uh, my best friend and his wife. And while we were there, my buddy did this and we just did it because we didn't care. But my buddy had, he was the dishwasher. My buddy turned to my wife and said, hey, can you turn the, can you load the dishwasher and do the dishes? I don't know how. That's kind of a controller, right? You don't know how to use the dishwasher in your own condo, right? Controllers try to manipulate other people and get them to do things because they don't want to. They can show up in your spouses, in your children. It's really, uh, it's really obvious and normal. Oftentimes this happens in a broken marriage where there's divorce involved and the child is going back and forth from mom to dad. And the child knows how to manipulate those parents and control those parents and play off the guilt that they have. They can show up in our families. When you get married, you don't just marry your spouse. You marry into a new family. And there's uh, vacations to manage. And there's holidays to manage. And manipulation can show up in those moments. And we don't want it to, but it can. Controllers exist in all kinds of different scenarios. Their goal is to try to get you to give more than you are freely willing to give. Controller's primary problem is their inability to hear the word no. And just like in compliance and avoidance, fear plays a key role for controllers prey on our fear. (coughs) They can spread it in two ways. They can spread it aggressively And you see this every time you watch any movie about the mafia, right? Or they spread it through manipulation. But either way, controller's goal is to use your fear against you to get you to say yes when you would rather say no. The fourth category is non-responsives. We've seen first compliance, avoidance, controllers, and now non-responsives. Non-responsives are people who do not hear the needs of others. There's this TV show that my wife and I really like to watch, and uh, we finished it now. And my wife doesn't really like watching TV, so anytime she wants to watch a show, I take her up on it. She, you know, she doesn't watch it at all. And so it was the show called Monk. And Monk is this obsessive-compulsive detective, and he goes around and he has a, a personal assistant who basically exists, you know, to hand him wet wipes after he shakes someone's hand. And... Um, There's this one episode, though, where Sharona and Monk have to go to the circus. And Sharona's not afraid of anything, and she has none of the problems that Monk does. But at the circus, we find out that Sharona's one fear is of elephants. She's terrified of elephants. And so she's having a hard time doing her job and helping Monk. And Monk is getting annoyed with her because her fears are ruining his time doing his, like, detective work. And finally, Sharona sits down with Monk and says, you know, Monk, I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time. I really do not like elephants, and I'm just not able to concentrate. And Monk looks her straight in the face and just says, Sharona, life's hard. 
suck it up. (laughs) When his whole life is a problem. And maybe you've had this time and, and they're not our finest moments, but when your spouse and you turn to your spouse and you say after a long day, and it should be one of these times of connecting because every day you make it through it, work, kids, all, it should just be like, we made it again, let's kiss and hug and have a good old time, right? But at the end of the night, sometimes you're so emotionally drained uh, that you have nothing left to give to your spouse. And you turn to your spouse and you say, you know, honey, I never use the word, that's not my term of endearment, but um, say, honey, it was a really hard day at work and uh, the kids were just hard and are you having a hard time? And if your spouse turns back to you and says, uh, sweetheart, life is hard, suck it up. (laughs) They're (laughs) non-responsive. And they're probably not destined for a great night, right? (laughs) Non-responsives do not recognize that they have a need that they are to give to the other person in the relationship. We looked at last week that we are responsible for ourselves, but we do have responsibilities to each other. We have responsibilities to our spouse, and when we make those vows and when our spouse comes down the aisle or when, you know, we look at them as we come down the aisle, you can tell which side I was on, um, we are not just looking at someone that looks their best on that special day, but we are making commitment to meet each other's needs and to be there for each other, to respond and help each other. And when we make those vows, we're saying, I'm going to pick up and help you. And when a couple years later, we have start to have kids, as many inevitably do, and some don't, and I think sometimes they're the wise ones. But as we have kids, when we have them, and as they grow old, you know, when they're uh, infants, that means like playing with a rattle on all fours and just shaking that and watching them smile. And I don't know about you, but I'm an adult. I don't play with rattles if kids aren't around. It's not fun to me. And when they grow and they're five and they want to learn to play catch for the first time, it means playing catch from three feet away, not pretending like you're Nolan Ryan from 30 feet, right? Which is actually kind of enjoyable to play catch doing it that way. But if you don't meet the needs of your kids and your spouse and your friends and you have needs to care, you have responsibilities to help meet needs that are appropriate. And if you're unwilling to do so, you're a non-responsive. And so this morning, as we look at these four key areas, these categories, and as you've inevitably thought as I'm talking, you know, which am I, who are in my life, then what are they? Um, I just want to remind you of one important thing. As you're thinking, first of all, you may have more than one of these. You could struggle with more than one of these. And second, you could struggle with them in different areas of life. Um, There is a difference between, uh, it's called functional and relational boundaries. Some people are really great functionally. They can go to work, they can get everything done, but when they come home, their relationships are a mess at home and with their friendships. And there's other people that have a great balance of boundaries in their relationships, but when they go to work, they have no discipline and just cannot get things done. But wherever you are in these categories, I want to show you this morning as we go to the text one important principle that you have to grasp that leads to all boundary problems. I've already said I'm not a psychologist, 
And I won't pretend to psychoanalyze your background and your history, but what I know the Bible says is that all boundary problems, our inabilities to say yes and to say no at the appropriate times are a result of one issue that we all struggle with. And it is this, a lack of unconditional love. When we struggle with boundaries, it's because we have a lack of security that we are unconditionally loved. In the book Boundaries, Henry Cloud and John Townsend say, you cannot develop or set boundaries apart from supportive relationships with God and with others. Don't even start trying to set limits until you have entered into deep, abiding attachments with people who love you no matter what. And this concept, this no matter what concept, is so critical. For without it, there's just not security. There was a group of psychologists who met together. They were male, and they were female, and they were young, and they were old, and they were a large group of them. And they met together at some kind of symposium, and their end, this was a couple years back, was specifically to discuss the question, what does it require in the environments of children to best position them to have healthy and enduring relationships? And the conference or the symposium was specifically about romantic relationships. Now, our conversation isn't just about romantic relationships, but what they said applies to us very directly. And here, this always makes me chuckle when I hear it, but these men and women, as they met, they uncovered that there are, I think there's 10, I didn't, I think there's 10 things that you need large and regular doses of to be set up for long-term healthy relationships. And here's what they are. Respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. To set yourself up for long-term healthy relationships in the future, as a child, you should be nurtured in an environment where you get large and regular doses of respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. And it always makes me chuckle because I think to myself, who do you know that as a child experienced regular and large throughout all the spheres of their life doses of those things? It is so rare. It is so rare. Even if we had incredible parents, and I would say I did, even if we had incredible parents, they wouldn't be perfect. But even if they were perfect, it's not our home life that entirely makes up our environment as children, is it? We go to school. We go into the community. It could be dance. It could be music. It could be sports. We have different things that we're interacting. It could be summer camp. We go to church, and that's another community where we hear messages and we have all these different environments. We have our home, we have our churches, we have our schools, we have our community involvement, we have our summer camps, we have all these different environments and they shape who we are. And if we need regular and large doses throughout our entire childhood of those 10 things to set us up for long-term healthy relationships, then many of us are gonna struggle. For most of us come into a deficit and we come into every relationship we have with this deficit and we're saying, I lack respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, respect, and love. 
So can you provide it for me? And the other person is saying, I'm lacking in these areas. Can you provide it for me? And it's almost like this death grip where both parties are saying, I need, I need. And the other one's saying, I need, I need. But what we all know is if we go into relationship for the express purpose of making up our gaps or our deficits, then we position ourselves by definition to be in unhealthy and self-serving relationships, which are not based on love. With that swirling in your mind, I want to draw your attention to what the Apostle Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's found in verses 4 through 7. This is a common text that gets used at a wedding ceremony. I just did it the other week. But I want you to hear again, as we have just heard what we have, what the Apostle Paul says about love. It starts in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. For love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And I love this part. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love does all of this stuff. It does it not based on what the other person did. So we can't go to our spouse or our friends or our children and say, especially our children, and say to them, you know, when you provide a love that is, you know, patient, kind, does not keep a record of wrongs, does not envy, then I will also provide you that kind of love. Sarah, that's the name of my wife, when you provide me a love that always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and always protects, then I will provide you with that same kind of love. That, by definition, would not be love. But it's almost as if we're in a catch-22. For we need unconditional love to be able to provide unconditional love. And here is where we see how Christianity in faith gives us resources that nothing else can give. It requires unconditional love to be able to give unconditional love. And when we do not feel like we have unconditional love, we gravitate towards two really bad things. We set limits and we lose relationships. Or secondly, we, set, we don't set limits and we feel like we're in a prison where we feel like we cannot say no. But if we can never set limits, or if every time we do, we lose relationships, it begins to shape who we are, and it changes the way we love. For we need unconditional love to be able to give unconditional love. In God's plan for each and every one of us, no matter what our past, no matter what our background, no matter what relationships you have, and as I speak, I know you're thinking. You don't just listen to me. You think about these things, and you think about who do you have in your past, and what relationships have really offered you that kind of unconditional love. And as you're thinking through all of that, I just want to tell you that God's plan for you is to be so unconditionally loved by him that you can offer the same to others. I want to read to you one last passage. It's found in 1 John, where the Apostle John explains to us the love of God. And I want you to listen to it very closely. It starts in verse 18 of chapter 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. 
The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And here in verse 18, we have uh, a reminder in those first four categories. Remember how all of them were motivated by fear. They're motivated by fear, but fear has nothing to do with love. It is the opposite of it, according to the apostle John. But then listen to what John continues to say. We love him, that is God, because he first loved us. We can love him because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And God has given us this command, anyone who loves God must love their brother as well. This morning, I just want to close by reminding you one important fact. God offers everyone unconditional love. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your past, what your thinking is. I've noticed that people who have hard past oftentimes have a hard time believing that God could love them because it's so easy to think that we can only receive the love that we deserve, but it is not true. God sets a framework or a a foundation where we can experience his love through through the love that God has shown us through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans reminds us, Uh, that God died for us while we were still sinners. It is one of the things I have to remind myself often. God does not love me because I make old ladies cookies and walk them across the street, because I open doors for people, because I'm nice. God loves me while I was still a sinner. And so I do not experience more of his love or I experience it, I suppose, but I do not have more of it when I do what is good. I feel that way. There's no question of that. But he does not love me less or love me more depending on my actions. God is a loving heavenly father who opens his arms and longs for us to run into them. But so many of us have grown up with a picture of God and we might call it like a guilt God that tells us that God is really big He's really stern, and it's kind of like a a coach or something. You know, when you do what's right and and you're playing soccer and you do what's right, he's like, that was okay. And when you do what's bad, it's like, that's, give me 20, right? And it's almost like we have this picture of God that tells us when we do what's right, he's like, that's what I thought. That's what I expected. But when we do what's wrong, he just slams us with his big, you know, stick that's got those holes in him for aerodynamic uh, maximum pressure and speed. And we imagine he's like Babe Ruth and he's a great baseball player, right? But God does not exist. He's a loving, heavenly father. This is the picture as you read the gospels that Jesus speaks of God as. A loving, heavenly father that offers us unconditional love and who sets a framework just as we saw in 1 John so that we can then show that love to others. When we experience the love of God, we recognize some things. We recognize things that we all struggle with. We recognize that God accepts us no matter what. We recognize that he approves of us. Like that little boy after he strikes out at the baseball game and his dad says, I love you, son. It's okay. Let's get ice cream. He approves of us 
He offers us freedom from our guilt and he doesn't want us to live within it. He offers us new life, a second chance, and he offers us, just like Karen was talking about during the offertory, intimacy and love. He wants to be close to us. And so this morning, as we continue and as we are considering setting boundaries in our life, and we have a working definition of what they are and an invisible fence that decides what we are responsible for and what we're not. And as we've seen common pitfalls, and I hope that you can be self-aware and honest enough with yourself and others to understand where you fall so that you can start working on those things. Because if you stay in those pitfalls, you hurt others, but you really just hurt yourself too. Nobody wants that for you. But the foundation as we finish and as we conclude and go through this whole series, and we're not even close, we've got nine weeks left. As we go through this series, the foundation for every bit of what we'll say about boundaries is the unconditional love of God that was shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I just want to pray for you that you would be enveloped by that love and that you would experience it for yourself personally. Let me pray for you. Father, this morning on this beautiful fall morning, we pray and ask that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes, and that you would make us uh, able to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of your unconditional love. For those of us who are struggling uh, with, with guilt, and for those of us who are struggling to see a God who could ever love us, I pray that you would just uh, take that lie away. Help us to see the forgiveness that you offer us through Jesus Christ and the desire that you have for us to experience your love. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.